Our scripture reading this afternoon will first come from Isaiah 61. We'll read that chapter. And uh, this is in connection with our sermon, which will be on the first three Beatitudes. We'll see how Isaiah 61 is very much says the same thing and it provides a background for those three Beatitudes. So Isaiah 61, and we'll begin at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations." Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. And all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Our text for this afternoon will come from Matthew 5. Matthew 5, the first five verses, and we can turn to that as well. This, of course, is the beginning of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, beginning at uh, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Thus far, our text
Brothers and sisters, if you were to read the first chapters of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, you, you would see Jesus Christ, Son of God, beginning his ministry. And as Jesus begins his ministry, in chapter 4, verse 17, we see that Jesus doesn't just begin ministry, but he begins preaching a message. His message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, turn, because heaven is breaking into your reality. And after Jesus announces his message, he then calls his disciples. He calls them to follow him and to learn his teachings. And then after that, in Matthew 5, Jesus sits down on a hillside. He calls his disciples and some others to him. And he begins to teach. He teaches a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in Brampton, we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount for the last five or six weeks. This is the second sermon in that series. And what's so odd, I think, to us as uh, modern Westerners is that Jesus begins this sermon with these mystical sayings, the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, which means the supreme or utmost blessing. And really, to, to the Western mind, this is a puzzling way to begin a sermon. And these eight sayings really don't make a lot of sense when we first read them. And so before we talk about the first three Beatitudes, I want to clear up, or at least help us understand two particular things about these sayings that will help us unlock their meaning. Why are the Beatitudes puzzling? And I want to, two things I want to talk about right away. I think one of the first reasons the Beatitudes are a bit puzzling to us today is because the English word blessed doesn't quite capture the, the original Greek word underneath. In English, we use the word blessed in two ways. In the first place, we bless people. Right? We, we wish them good. But that's not really what's going on in the Beatitudes, is it? It's more the second meaning of the English word blessed that is what Jesus is getting at in the Beatitudes. The second meaning is, some, you can think of a time when, when someone takes a picture sit, standing on the top of a mountain. Or a, a picture where they're, 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 they're in front of a particularly good background. And they, under the picture, they might say, blessed. And if they're under 30, it might have a hashtag. Hashtag blessed. Sometimes you see this on social media. And this is actually the best way to describe how Jesus is using the word blessed in the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying... God views the person with this quality as a particularly, as having something particularly good. Instead of, you know, sitting in front of a sunset 
or a picture of the Caribbean behind you, Jesus is saying, no, the person who is poor in spirit and meek and, more, and who grieves, this person is the person who should have the picture of hashtag blessed. The person who has the Beatitudes has the truly best thing according to God. Something better than being on top of a mountain. This person is blessed because they have the quality described in the Beatitudes and also because this person, by having the quality in the Beatitudes, must therefore belong to the kingdom of heaven and to Jesus. And who could be more blessed than that? But this, of course, leads to our second issue with the Beatitudes. Because if you read the Beatitudes, especially, again, as a Westerner, the Beatitudes don't sound like things that I want to be true of myself, do they? I mean, who wants to mourn? Or be poor in spirit? And who wants to be meek? Now, being meek sucks. For Westerners. No Westerner in his right mind wants to be meek. Oof. So why on earth is this described as the condition of true goodness and blessedness by Jesus? What's going on? Well, we need to recognize that the Beatitudes are profoundly countercultural. They are, in fact, the direct opposite of the human sinful heart. And conversely, they are a description of Jesus' heart. And the Beatitudes are a description of the character of someone's heart. And if they describe Jesus' heart, then that means that, strictly speaking, this kind of heart is impossible to have on this earth without Jesus. This kind of heart could only be the kind of heart attainable if the kingdom of heaven has entered it through the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to give some perspective on how countercultural the kingdom of heaven heart is, I want to give you a list of secular beatitudes. What would people in our society think is the most blessed state of the human heart? These Beatitudes were ironically written by Josh Harris, who originally was a pastor but left the Christian faith, now runs a marketing company in Vancouver. Interestingly, he's now living the secular Beatitudes, but never mind the irony, let me read them to you. Blessed are the self-confident because they rule the world. Blessed are the positive thinkers because they don't need comfort. Blessed are the assertive, for they get what they want. Blessed are those who hunger for recognition and fame, for they get noticed. Blessed are the pleasure seekers, because they have a good time. Blessed are those who win, because winners write history and accomplish much. 
Blessed are the popular, because everyone loves them. And blessed are the free, for they have control over their destiny. That is our culture's view of the truly good character. If you were to go to our local sports stadium or the local legislature or town hall, or better yet, the local television station, this would be people censored. that's the kind of person I want to be. And that's what makes Jesus' beatitude so striking. Because they're the opposite of all of that. And so let's walk through them and we'll begin to see how that works itself out. And how radically different the kingdom of heaven is from our world. And so let's start with the first beatitude in verse 3. Right, which reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the word for poor here refers to someone who is materially destitute, a beggar, someone who does not own anything. No money, no food, nothing. And so we could say, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. If there was money with which you and I could buy spiritual things, we would have zero Blessed are the spiritual beggars. Now, before we say anything else, this shouldn't surprise us that Jesus describes this as the blessed human heart. Because in the Old Testament, this is often talked about. Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. Or think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. If anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised and the people of Israel, on and on and on, right? And then he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage or dumb in the literal term. The point being, Nothing I possess as a human being gains me a single cent with God. What pew I sit in, what church I go to, what feelings I may have had in my past or have today or don't have today, all my Hail Marys, or even how obedient I've been in the past. Nothing accounts for nothing in God's eyes in spiritual currency. Paul says, dung, it's manure. It's pretty, a pretty good hit to your pride, isn't it? And to illustrate this, I once saw a documentary about a deep sea diver. Right? I mean, how should we think about this? This documentary was about this deep sea diver. He's at the bottom of the ocean floor, 200 and something feet down. He's connected to the mothership above him through an umbilical cord, in this case. This cord provided him with air and power and, and heat and whatever else. But in the documentary, it was about the ship had a power failure. 
And as a result, the, the, ship, the ship no longer could hold its position in the ocean and began to drift. But the diver was on the floor. He couldn't drift. And as the ship drifted away, the umbilical cord snapped, leaving the diver on the seafloor by himself. And all he had was a reserve tank of air with about five minutes of air. And if you know anything about diving, a diver cannot simply rise to the surface. They have to rise slowly, otherwise the nitrogen in their blood boils their blood. The diver was trapped. He had no way out. Due to the extreme cold, he passed out within a minute. My point is, this is the human condition. We humans have 70 years of air to breathe. As we lie trapped at the bottom of the ocean, severed from the umbilical cord of grace and sacrifice through Jesus. And here's the thing. When you're trapped at the bottom of the ocean, what should you be thinking about? Should you be thinking about the size of your bank account? What school you went to? How much you're liked by your church community? No. When you are at the bottom of the ocean, there is only one thing that matters, and that is rescue. You need rescue. That is the only thing you need. And Jesus is saying in this beatitude, blessed are you if you recognize your situation. Blessed are you if you recognize that the only thing you need in this life is rescue and you have absolutely nothing, nothing to contribute to that rescue. If you're the kind of person who tries to rescue yourself, your blood will boil and kill you. Jesus is saying, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you see that. Why? Because you have found the secret for how to enter the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those people get the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that why they're shocking, isn't it? It's not the best people who get to go to the kingdom of heaven. It's those who recognize that they have nothing. Now you might ask, well, okay. Okay. Well, how do I recognize my spiritual poverty? Well, ironically, you cannot make yourself see your spiritual poverty. If you could make yourself see your spiritual poverty, you wouldn't be spiritually poor, would you? No. God shows you your spiritual poverty when you come face to face with his glory, perhaps on Sunday. You see, the irony is that we humans think we're naturally spiritually rich. We love to think high thoughts of ourselves. But the irony is that we have nothing, even though we think we have everything. I'm often reminded of what a pastor once said to me. He said, you know, God doesn't need you. 
He was speaking into my heart as a pastor, a heart that thinks that the church needs me and my talent. Really, it's the opposite. It's a blessing to be used. We recognize our spiritual poverty when God confronts us with the fullness of his glory. Right? God once met the prophet Isaiah in all of his glory, right? Isaiah 6, Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. And, and what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man with unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. The king of the kingdom. Yes, when we see this spiritual richness of God and of Jesus, who was so spiritually rich that he gave up his glory to serve us and to submit to human violence. And so we could say it this way, blessed are those who understand their own woe. The kingdom belongs to them. Let's move to the second beatitude because it's related. The second beatitude is a number verse four, which says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the word for mourn here, grieve, is deep, piercing sorrow. Blessed are those who grieve. Now you might say, Well, hold on a second here. That's why is it good to grieve? I mean, isn't grief bad? Isn't grief an effect of sin? See, but this is the point. Grief is an appropriate reaction to the sin of this world and the destruction of that sin. And so what Jesus could be saying, blessed are those who view themselves and the world honestly and weep as a result. And the facts, brothers and sisters, if we're willing to look at them, are pretty bad, aren't they? Especially if you know how good it could be, right? We are dirty, rotten, repugnant people. Our sin separates us from God and convinces us that rebellion and independence from God is the natural and best state of being. Our sin destroys joy. It fills us with guilt that destroys us even further. Our world is a rotten mess of abuse and violence and oppression and lies. Maybe if you're a little older, your family and friends keep getting sick and dying. How do you deal with that? Any other response than grief to a, the death of a loved one in your life is, 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 is based on lies. And Jesus says, if, if you've met me, if you've read my word, if you've seen the vision of heaven that I proclaim, this situation has got to grieve you. There's no other honest reaction. Jesus says, when I saw death in my friend Lazarus, I wept too. You see this, the sin of our world and the death in our world breaks Jesus' heart too. Jesus grieved sin. He gets emotional about it. It reminds me of when I served as staff at a summer camp one year. 
summer camp where we had a, a BC where we had a week for teenagers, for high school seniors. And every Wednesday at this camp, we would have two fires, one for the boys and one for the girls. And the topic of the campfire was pornography and lust. And the way it went is at the campfire, every, every person would, over the course of the evening, would share their current experience with these sins. Staff, counselors, campers, everyone. It would take all night. And the reality was, year after year, few, if any, were doing well. There was a lot of losing going on. And what do you think the dominant emotion was at a fire like that? Well, the dominant emotion was weeping. Here you have, you know, 30, 35 grown men in their prime, physical prime, weeping. What were they weeping about? Well, the shame, first of all. And more than anything, weeping at the damage that this had done and would do. Weeping at the damage that they had done to the woman in their lives and would do to the future woman. There was no other reasonable response to it than weeping. There's also a little bit of anger, which wasn't inappropriate. And Jesus says, if that's where you're at, if that's you, if that's what your sin does to you on occasion, then blessed are you. Blessed are you if your sin breaks you. Because it breaks mine too. And so we begin to realize that grief and sorrow are natural for the Christian. If nothing else, this beatitude teaches us that sorrow and grief are entirely appropriate. And that the church should be a place where people can grieve. For years, even, if that may be the case. Jesus says, it's okay. I understand that. In fact, if the world drives you to that, then you must have understood me. If you know me, if you've seen me and the vision of my kingdom, then grief has got to show up in your life. And then he says, well, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. If you weep over your sin, then you're ready to receive the comfort of the comforter and the comfort of the man who, who suffered the violence of men. Because there's no way you'd grieve the way you do unless you would have seen me, Jesus says. I produce this effect in you because I'm so good. You've come face to face with this vision of beauty. And the rottenness of our world destroys you. We could say it this way too. Feeling the absence of God means you already have God.
Keep that in mind. Now you might say, isn't the Christian supposed to be joyful? Like, aren't we, are we really supposed to walk around downcast all the time? Is that reasonable? Doesn't the Bible talk about joy? Yes, in fact, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, isn't it? But the point is, how, does, how, how do we get Christian joy? Where does it come from? Is Christian joy something that I manufacture in my life? No. The point is that Christian joy comes through grief. Christian joy is given by Jesus through his gospel. But getting the gospel always involves fighting and defeating sin and, and reckoning with sin. And as we reckon with sin and as we deal with it, then the joy of defeating and the joy of seeing the magnificence of Jesus begins to come. And it's like going to the doctor, right? When you go to the doctor, his job is not to take your pain away, right? Unless he's a pain doctor. When you go to the doctor, you want the doctor to deal with the problem that creates the pain. Right? The same as with Jesus. He wants to deal with the sin in our lives. Right? And, as he, and as he does, joy comes as we begin to defeat that sin. This comfort comes through dealing with sin, not instead of it. And so as you grieve over your sin, you receive forgiveness and healing, and joy becomes your default mode through Christ. And so yes, we will walk with joy in this life. But in this life, grief will always stalk our joy. It will always be near. It has to. It's only when we leave this life that the joy becomes permanent. Which leads us to the third point. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth for they shall inherit the earth. Now this beatitude is frequently misunderstood. The key thing to realize right away with this one is that meek does not mean weak or spineless. The Christian is not spineless. We know this because Jesus describes himself as meek in Matthew 11 verse 29, and Jesus is not a weak man. He calms storms, for example. He endures a cross. In Scripture, the word for meek, it's often for, there's two sides to it. The first side is, it's a person who puts himself last, consciously. That's the first side. And the second side is, because the person puts himself last, he therefore walks through this life with a calm, collected disposition. The commentator says it this way, he says, this person has a controlled desire to see another's interest advance before his, his own and therefore walks through life with a peaceful, calm disposition. How do we, let me illustrate this for a second. Children are an excellent illustration of the opposite of meekness. Imagine your children are playing at home and you decide to open a box of candy. You decide that your children can have one candy each. Well, they're like my children. They eat the one candy. They're happy for about 
20 seconds. And then they ask for another one. And if you say no, they lose their minds. Which is interesting because five minutes before you opened the box of candy, the children were content with zero candies. But then you showed them a box of candy and now they're dissatisfied with one and wouldn't be satisfied with 20. The point is this. The emotions of your kids reflect the state of their heart and the types of desires that live there. Mentally, they think they deserve more because there is more and therefore turbulent emotions arise. The meek person is the opposite of children in that situation. The meek person is thrilled that he or she would get one candy. He or she wouldn't even feel worthy of the one candy. And of course, if you're that kind of a person, your emotions will be stable. One author said it this way, he said, the man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. A meek man is amazed that anyone treats him well because he thinks he deserves nothing. James comments on this in James 4 verse 1. He says, you know, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You see the connection between what you believe in your heart and what you desire versus how you act. Now again, true meekness cannot be produced by the human heart on its own. It's something that flows from our encounters with God and our spiritually awakening through the Spirit. And true meekness is not a, you know, necessarily to have a low view of self. In some ways, being meek is to not think of self at all. The truly meek person becomes meek by con being consumed with God and with what other people need. The truly meek man doesn't sit around going, woe is me, my life is terrible. He just thinks of God and he thinks of other people and he just lives that way. And interestingly, Jesus says, these are the people who inherit the earth. The point being, the meek have absolutely everything in, in Jesus Christ and in the next life. And so, because you have absolutely everything in Jesus, that means that in this life, you can afford to give up everything for the sake of other people. Meekness is, in fact, the origin of generosity. What's so fascinating is that our entire economic system in this country is based on the opposite of being meek. Right? It's based on greed, covetousness. Our world is tailored for a grasping, covetous heart. Take what you can while the getting is good. That's the motto, right? A world lionizes the ambitious and the assertive. 
Meekness in the Bible is the, literally the opposite of our society's values. It's that heavenly dis- spiritual disposition. A person knows he or she has the wealth of heaven and therefore can spend this life giving up his or her own wealth for the sake of others. In fact, we can even give up our own lives for the sake of others. Just like Jesus gave up his life for us. He was a truly meek man. And one final comment on this, or before I say that, this isn't to say that you shouldn't run a business or that you shouldn't grow your business, for example. That's not the point. The point is, when you grow your business or when you expand your business, why do you do so? Do you grow your business because you need more? Or do you grow your business to improve this world and to provide a living for yourself and other people? I think you honestly got to examine your heart if, if, if this is your situation. Why do you do business? Is your business part of your walk of faith or in spite of it? This beatitude has everything to say about that. But I'll leave it with you. Finally, the meekness of the kingdom is not laziness or spinelessness, as I've said before. In fact, you should already realize that being meek takes enormous strength, doesn't it? And being meek is no excuse for failing to stop sin in yourself or other people. For example, if a man breaks in your home and tries to steal your children, you should stop him. Why? Well, because your task is to love your children and to love the robber and the kidnapper, too. It's bad for him to steal your children. That's bad for his soul. So sometimes being meek requires action. It requires, uh, you know, this pursuit of self-denial in, in pursuing something that you need. It isn't, meekness isn't just sitting at home doing nothing, which is how we're tempted to think of it. Often it requires risk being meek. Sometimes the reason the church takes no risks is because the church is not meek. A meek church might take enormous risks by doing things with its building and facilities that is incredibly selfless. Right? But again, it takes great strength to be meek, doesn't it? The strength of Jesus, in fact. But let's conclude. The first three Beatitudes are a description of the spiritually awakened heart. I mean, when a person meets Jesus and believes in him and is filled with the Holy Spirit, these three Beatitudes become true of them. We recognize a poverty of spirit when we meet Jesus. We Obviously, here is a man who is God himself. I mean, we've got nothing like this. We recognize that we're stuck on the bottom of the ocean and without Jesus, we're, we're, we're finished. We're done. There's absolutely nothing we can do to help the rescuer. You see, but the magnificent gospel here is that this spiritual poverty 
is the very prerequisite for kingdom membership. And the gospel could not be richer than this. Like, logically speaking, the gospel could not be greater than the fact that the kingdom is open to those who recognize that they have nothing to contribute to entry. If the gospel was any different, it wouldn't be good news. And so if you're sitting at home and you've listened to these three Beatitudes and you've said, man, I'm a terrible Christian. I am not very poor in spirit. I don't grieve my sin. And I'm not a meek person. If you're sitting at home saying, man, I'm kind of broken. Like, I'm, this heart isn't my heart. And you recognize that? Well, blessed are you, aren't you? Because if you've listened to this sermon and you've applied it to your own heart and you found yourself wanting, then you are exactly in the right position. You're, in fact, grieving your sin, aren't you? And you've recognized your poverty of spirit. And this should produce a sense of meekness in you. And that's the point. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. To you, the broken sinner. The sinner who can contribute nothing. The sinner who mourns the fact that you can contribute nothing. The Beatitudes are produced by Jesus working in you. They are the product of seeing the glory of God and feeling small. And what's so beautiful is that Jesus in Matthew 11 verse 29 says that he is meek too. I am meek, my yoke is light and my burden is easy. And so Jesus doesn't save you to burden you or place a a new burden on you. No, Jesus, Jesus is meek. He doesn't need anything from you. He's willing to give you all of himself. And he's going to give you himself so that you can have contentment and peace and rest and an eternity with him. That's what he's doing for you. And he's, because he's meek, he can love you with a pure love that you and I can really only imagine. A love that's completely selfless and giving. And if that's all true, then whatever pain that comes from living the Beatitudes, and there will be pain. Jesus talks about persecution later. The pain of the Beatitudes is not Jesus' fault. No, the pain is the pain of sin. The first three Beatitudes just express how painful and difficult, really, living in a sinful world is. Sin makes the Beatitudes painful, not Jesus. No, Jesus is the way of rest and peace. Jesus is the way of freedom. And he loves you. No other person on this world gave their life the way he did. The way of the world and its self-importance is a mirage for the human soul. As glittering as it is, its rewards are a short-term myth. No, Jesus brings you the kingdom of heaven. And my prayer and his prayer today is that you would enter it 
as a broken sinner. Amen.